Hey everyone, Ben here with a quick interruption before we get into today's episode to let you know that we have been nominated for a Sports Podcast Award. Yippee! That is very, very exciting. We are actually incredibly honoured and excited to have that nominee. And you, the listener, yes, the very person that is listening to this right now can help us win a Sports Podcast Award and get us on the podium for once rather than always being off the podium. To do so, head to sportspodcastawards.com. Dot com register to vote click on the best olympic and paralympic podcast category where you can then vote for us to win now you will have to listen to the other nominees as well but let's be honest you know you're going to vote for us because you're listening to our show today which means we know you like us and we'd very much appreciate the vote in advance sportspodcastawards.com that's how you do it and we thank you in advance and everybody who votes for us we promise to thank you in our acceptance speech should we win. Right now, I'm going to shut up, play some music, and then you're going to hear me talk again as we get into today's episode of Off the Podium. Enjoy. They're standing and they're applauding that dramatic performance by James Orville and Christopher Dean. Alex Philadelphia. It takes a lot to make him happy and he is clearly pleased. She's up, she's moving nicely. She's got to hit it. Yes! Sally Stegel, 132.67, has won at least the medal. She's 0.24 of beauty. On the ice for the Gimlet. The Gimlet scoping! It is off the podium, an Olympics podcast coming to you today for a pretty exciting episode. You know we like to tick off the sports in terms of the Olympic sports of the Olympians that we chat to, and we always get excited when we talk to a new sport, an athlete from a new sport, I should say. And today we're doing that in what is now the penultimate sport that we haven't talked about when it comes to the Winter Olympics, long track speed skating. Can you believe we've never had a long track speed skater on this show? And we are speaking today with Daniel Gregg, an Australian two-time Olympian in the sport of long track speed skating, and a fascinating story that Daniel has to tell about his Olympic journey, how we transitioned into the sport after being a quite a handy inline skater and after a couple of near misses about the sport being included in the summer olympics decided to switch focus across over to the winter olympics and try his hand at long track speed skating now for people outside of australia maybe our canadian listeners or european listeners who long track speed skating is a bit more of a prominent sport The sport of long track speed skating isn't really a sport you can do pretty easily in Australia because we have no facilities in Australia for long track speed skating. Have to, of course, resort to the much smaller rinks, hence why maybe we've produced a few more successful short track speed skaters in this country. But as you will learn in this interview, Australia has a very storied history in the sport of long track speed skating, believe it or not. Until 1994, our best ever Olympic result at the Winter Olympics was in the sport of long track speed skating. And you'll hear just exactly when and who that was with in this interview. And Daniel goes over just the the hurdles he had to overcome in the sport, 
narrowly missing out on a first Olympics back in Vancouver by just a, the tiniest of margins, and then his experiences in Sochi and Pyeongchang. And quite fascinating to learn about his experiences in Sochi in particular because he actually was a genuine medal chance going in to the Sochi Olympics. And something happened to him during those games which prevented him to him. Very honest, open experience about how he dealt with that. And just a fascinating chat here with Daniel and learning more about his Olympic experiences. You're going to enjoy this one. This is our chat with two-time Olympic speed skater Daniel Gregg. I am so excited to talk to our next guest here on the show today because we are ticking off the penultimate winter sport on the Winter Olympics program of an athlete we've never spoken to before. We're speaking to somebody today from the sport of long track speed skating, an Australian two-time Olympian from Sochi and Pyeongchang. And I am so fascinated to learn more about this sport and his journey in it. It's a pleasure to welcome to the program Daniel. Greg, Daniel, first of all, welcome to Off the Podium. It's a pleasure to speak with you today. Yeah, no, uh, thanks a lot, Ben. It's nice to talk to uh, someone else too. And in the uh, before before we uh, got on here, it was nice to hear about how you're such uh, a passionate Olympic uh, nerd like myself. <laughs> <laughs> We're the best type, right? Like that. that that's kind of, you know, we need to be advertised a little bit more out there that these passionate Olympic nerds should be, you know, a thing. We should be, we should be our own Olympic sport. Come on. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think people don't realize that the Olympics is inherently a lot more nerdy than people realize. <laughs> yes. When all of a sudden you want to talk about the 1920 Antwerp Olympics, you know that that might be slightly nerdy. Um, so, <laughs> you know, that, that could be a topic of conversation, special episode. One thing I wanted to add, though, and I, I'm sure you never get this at all, Daniel, is uh, we're a, we're a co-Canadian Australian show. I was mentioning this off air and our, our co-host on this show, Colin, he he joins me on, a, on another spin-off show. We do a James Bond podcast. And when we're talking about Daniel Craig, he likes to say Daniel Craig in his lovely accent. And when I literally am researching you for this interview and Googling you and I type in Daniel Craig, what does it also come up with Daniel Craig? Do you, do you often get confused for the six James Bond out there at all, Daniel? Yeah, no, uh, absolutely that happens. Is uh, And most of the time while booking hotels. <laughs> so I, I'll be I'll be booking hotels and I'll have booked my hotel and then I'll get uh, a call from the hotel concierge staff because they've mistakenly thought that I am Daniel Craig, the James <laughs> Bond actor, and they're, they're they're calling me up and asking if I need special concierge services. As much as I very much love to take them off on that offer. I have to disappoint them at that time, and so Aww. I'm sorry. I'm just Daniel Craig, the Australian Olympian, wow. and then they hang up the phone. <laughs> so you need to play up to that you should just be like absolutely i expect my usual tailor up here at seven i want some bollinger yeah. uh you know like this is where you play up to that come on after all these years you should be making the most of it yeah well i think but probably in the countries where they might not have necessarily seen him all that much on tv i could probably take advantage of that as so i could just turn up and say oh yeah, yeah i'm not sorry i'm not quite as tall as i look on tv maybe a little bit more tan but uh, yeah, I'm I'm him. I'm him. Yep, absolutely. I will gladly uh, sign your James Bond book, a hundred percent. But I love any form of speed skating. And I think obviously for most Australians, we think speed skating, we're thinking short track, we're thinking Bradbury, we're thinking all that kind of things. But when it comes to long track, 
Australia has a bit more of a, a deeper history in the sport than I think a lot of Australians actually realise. How do you get into long track? Give us your sort of journey into how you pick up this fantastic sport. Yeah, okay. So um, I started off, uh, my first contact with any kind of speed skating was uh, rollerblading. Uh, my dad gave me a pair of rollerblades, uh, literally the rollerblade bland brand, uh, when I was uh, five or six years old, and he genuinely just wanted to get me out of the house. I'm pretty sure because, <laughs> well, as as almost every Olympian will say, uh, uh, they got into sport because their parents realized they had a kid with way too much energy and they just needed them out of the house. <laughs> um, That's the perfect journey for so, every Olympian, hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah. Yeah, it, it seems to be one of the more common ones. Uh, and uh, in Australia, I, uh, I got into uh, inline speed skating. Uh, so that's essentially ice speed skating, but just with wheels on the bottom of your feet instead of a blade. Uh, and uh, I got involved. Uh, we have uh, in Australia, we have a national circuit uh, and a national championships. And uh, at a very young age, um, I got offered to go to the national championships for Australia. Uh, that was probably... Well, when I was when I was thirteen, I was skating uh, out of a little inline skating club uh, in Melbourne in a suburb called Eltham, uh, which back then was called the Eltham Speed Skating Club, but I believe now it's called uh, Skaters with a Z Skaters wow. Club. Came up modernized with it. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then uh, um, yeah, I went. I went and I represented Victoria at the time, and I, I brought home a couple medals. Uh, and then I think maybe uh, three years later, when I was 15, uh, they felt I was uh, of a high enough level that they offered me a position on uh, the world championship team. Uh, and that was um, my first world championship experience was in 2006. Uh, uh, Skate Australia sent me to Korea, South Korea. Uh, and uh, in my first events, I believe it was the 1000 meters, which is an event I also contest uh, on ice now these days, I got ninth and all of a sudden uh, a whole new world opened up for me as I thought, oh, oh shit, I might be quite good at something. Um, and back then I was a typical little shit. Um, I didn't really take any of my coaches seriously. I barely turned up to training. Um, and then uh, I got approached by, um, I think one of the parents from the club and uh, not, not, my, not my own parents, but another parent who sort of said, said to me, oh, maybe if you, you know, dedicated yourself, you could really, you could really be something in this. So I thought, oh yeah, maybe that's true. So I chatted to my own parents and we, uh, we found um, at that time, someone who was considered to be the best inline speed skating coach uh, in Australia. Her name is uh, Desley Hill. Uh, and she wasn't actually in Australia at that time. She was uh, coaching inline skating teams in Europe where there's uh, quite a much bigger circuit for that. But she was willing to give, you know, some advice at a distance. Uh, so she was writing a training program for me at a distance. And she had uh, one of her friends um, who was also an ex-speed skater come out and, uh, and coach me. Actually, not just one of her friends. I think there was uh, two, or, two or three of them that would come out and give advice. And so she was, she was running my programs at a distance. And her friend was uh, turning up and, and coaching me. And when I say uh, turning up and coaching me, uh, we didn't have any world championship level venues for inline speed skating in, uh, in Melbourne at the time. So we were skating on car parks, literally. 
So we're just turning up at like shopping center car parks and, uh, and, you know, rolling around with our rollerblades on. And then every now and then security would come and chase us out. <laughs> <laughs> they can and, catch um, you though, right? Come on, you're not in the world. <laughs> that's right. Exactly. They couldn't, they could never catch me. <laughs> so, and that, I think as a teenager, that was kind of an element that was attractive to me as I was almost doing something that wasn't allowed. Um, I think that that made it exciting for me. Uh, so I did that. And then uh, next year I, I came back to a, a world championships, a junior world championships. Uh, and I was junior world champion, completely out of nowhere. Didn't expect it. Uh, had no idea what, were, what was coming, but uh, I was junior world champion in, in the sprint distances. And I thought, holy crap. Um, what now? Uh, so, uh, I kept, uh, I kept on training and at about that time I was also completing VCE, uh, in Melbourne. And I th- believe they've called it something else, but that's the last two years of high school, uh, where you have to, where you have to get a really high score in order to uh, get into all the university courses that you want. Uh, so I kept training and I missed, I think about, I think I only attended about 66% of my last year of high school. <laughs> As you must um, do in year twelve, it's yeah, not important, right? But, but I had a good exactly. <laughs> but I had a good reason. I had a good reason. <laughs> and um, then I went to junior world championships again. That was my final year competing as a junior, and I was for the second year in a row junior world champion, which was yeah awesome. I thought at that time I was starting to get pretty pretty big ego, and I thought, oh wow, yeah, I'm I'm really I'm I'm so good at this, um, but. Uh, at that time, there was also something else that was going on and quite, uh, quite visibly within the sport of inline speed skating is it was getting considered for a summer Olympics position. Uh, and I believe at the time it was between inline speed skating and rugby to be added to the summer Olympics program uh, as, a, as a test event. Uh, and at that world championships, the IOC was present, the committee. And a couple of weeks after that world championships, which was in Spain, uh, this was 2008, uh, they released a decision that inline speed skating would not uh, be added to the Olympic program. So uh, the, the last couple of years, I was sort of, people were sort of saying things like, oh, maybe you'll be, you know, you'll hit the senior ranks just at the time that inline speed skating becomes an Olympic sport. And then all of a sudden, it was just not possible. Like, at least for an Olympic cycle, just not going to be possible. Um, but that wasn't the end of the road. So there, there was quite a lot of speed skaters in attendance at that world championships from the Netherlands, which is a sport in which inline speed skating and ice speed skating are kind of interchangeable. Uh, they, they, they happen concurrently. It's just speed skating is something that happens year round but it's seasonal. So in the summer, they skate on wheels. In the winter, they skate on ice. And uh, the attitude from the, from the Dutch was very much, well, just, just go do ice speed skating. Because to them, that was sort of the natural, okay, if you can't go to the Olympics with wheels on your feet, go to the Olympics with a blade on your foot. So uh, that's, that, that idea that was planted in my head and uh, I chatted to my dad about it. My dad said, yeah, well, uh, why not? Maybe, maybe give it a shot. Um, and my dad very generously offered to, to pay for uh, a week trip for me and him to just go to the Netherlands and try ice speed skating and see how it was. So I think it was four or five months later. Yeah, for the very first time I flew to Europe, uh, not to go on a holiday, but to go to an ice skating rink 
in a city in the north of the Netherlands and yeah, have a shot at ice skating. <laughs> so wow. uh, very grateful to my dad that he used his, uh, his savings at the time and, uh, and his holidays to take me to a, yeah, I guess quite a small cold ice skating rink so that I could just uh, skate around like a little brat. <laughs> and my attitude or the, the outcome of that was that I came back to Australia and I said, Oh, ice skating sucks. <laughs> I, hate, I hated the cold. I, I hated the weather in the Netherlands. Uh, I hated everything about it at that time. I think because I was used to, when I do sport, uh, I was skating out in the sunshine, the beautiful weather in Australia. And when I went to competitions, I was also going to like nice warm countries. And I was very much a sun child, I suppose you would say. And that really, really didn't suit me. But that, so that was my first experience with long track speed skating. And uh, it wasn't until that idea of that was my shot at going to the Olympics. It wasn't until about six months later when that idea that that burnt a hole in my skull and I just went, you know what, screw it. I'm going to try it anyway. Wow. Yeah. Is it something that when it comes to the roller sports and you mentioning kind of obviously in a place like the Netherlands where speed skating is is basically a, a national sport almost that that that's that's that common and is there much of a and i'm sure you'll talk about kind of the, the transition across into ice but is it something that you could just quickly pick up and like when you had those first experience on the ice in the netherlands that you find you said well this isn't all that different it's blades instead of wheels same techniques things like that or is, is there a little bit more to it than that uh there is and there isn't so um Actually, inline skating was invented to be a summer training method for ice skating because wow. ice skating is a much older sport. Uh, I think you'll know from the history of the Winter Olympics, it's one of yeah, it's one of the oldest events from the Winter Olympics, long track speed skating. And it wasn't until about 1970s or 1980s uh, when someone, I believe it was actually also in the Netherlands, someone thought, well, it, if we want to train in the summer, why don't we just make a blade that has wheels on it and then go skating out on the road. And um, I might have my history of skating companies a little bit wrong here, but I believe that was the Rollerblade company. So if you think about the name Rollerblade, and that yeah. was the first time that that, uh, that was invented. And then, so the, these Rollerblades, they existed for quite a long time before um, they began to take off within a sport because up until I think it was 1989 or 1991 when people did skating races, they still used roller skates with like uh, trucks and wheels arranged in a square. And then all of a sudden people started turning up to these races with roller blades on and like completely kicking their asses, just going so much faster. And then that, that caused a sort of a revolution within that sport. And at the same time, it was a revolution in, the way that people were thinking about skating um, as being a completely separate sport from ice skating, all of a sudden they were a lot closer together in how you did it. And then from all the way through the 1990s and the early 2000s, there was a, a history of skating, really great skating athletes transitioning to ice skating and then all of a sudden just dominating the ice skating sport out of nowhere yeah, because it, they came from a completely separate training background that was a lot more focused on aerobic fitness 
where the attitude to ice skating until that point was that it was just a power sport. And so a lot of these inline skating trained athletes just came out and dominated. And there was one that was very much in the forefront of, of, um, of my mind when I was thinking whether I was going to try and make the transition is there was an American athlete who was very famous in inline skating called Chad Hedrick. And he, at the, towards the end of his inline skating career, he decided to switch to ice skating and then went and won Olympic and Olympic gold medal after transitioning from one sport to another, something like two years later. So uh, it's, it's close enough that you don't need to change your fitness in order to really perform having come from one sport to the other, but it's also different enough that you can't expect that just because you can roll a blade that you can also ice skate. There are some nuances to it. Which, I mean, as somebody who can't actually skate at all, Daniel, I've, I've, you know, gotten a pair of the blades and thought, I want to learn, I want to play this, I want to play hockey, I want to do this. And then I put the skates on and I chicken out because I'm just chicken shit. But it's, um, <laughs> it's, I, I think it's really fascinating having sort of grown up in Hobart and, you know, I covered a lot of our very small, tiny local ice hockey league here is that most of those players would be recruited from, uh, you know, roller hockey and kind of the, the roller sports, obviously, because there's much more of a roller sports scene, uh, you know, in a summer country, particularly in Hobart, where we've got a tiny little rink versus an ice one. So it's kind of, did you find sort of when you came sort of back to Australia and, and you were sort of saying, like, I want to go into ice skating, speed skating, you know, rather than roller, that what's that attitude like in the roller community then? Because I can, uh, is it looked upon as that a lot of people do that or like, mate, you're crazy. Like, you know, who wants to go into a, to a rink? You're not going to be able to do this. I mean, is there an attitude at all when you sort of start saying that to people? Uh, absolutely. There is, is uh, I think uh, because those communities in Australia are just small communities anyway, because they're not really big sports within Australia. They're always afraid to lose someone who might be one of their shining stars. So there was a little bit of attitude that I faced when I came back and I said, look, guys, I want to have a shot at ice skating. There was this attitude, rather, I think it was, no matter how I pitched it, it was received as that I wanted to leave sport A behind and then go pursue sport B. Uh, when the way that I saw it was uh, very much what I'd seen the Dutch doing is that one sport supported the other because that, that is the origin from inline skating. And it's not, not as if they were two separate sports that were conceived of completely separately. They were always meant to be done together. And that's still, still my attitude to this day. Um, and that's always how I trained actually from one sport to the other uh, is in the summer, if I wanted to make my ice skating better, I trained on inlines. And if I wanted to keep my inline skating good in the winter, I would train on ice with ice skates on. It's, uh, so it's fascinating think, to kind of have that, isn't it? That like it is a sport yeah. that's all but been invented to complement the ice and that there's kind of that attitude. I mean, I look at something like rugby league and rugby union where rugby league's kind of invented as a, hey, this is a off-season sport to keep your union skills intact. And then a lot of people in rugby league, well, oh, no, I don't have anything to do with rugby union. No, that's a different sport or vice versa. It's, it's interesting when exactly. these sports exist because of the other one and yet you're kind of so much against the other one. That's such a fantastic, yeah, that's such a fantastic example as rugby league and rugby union. And I think that's uh, maybe, maybe people don't know enough about the history of the sport they're actually in to realize that that's the case. Yeah. Or maybe that's just natural, naturally part of sport is people that are drawn to sport have that sort of instinct of 
forming a team and competing against another. And yeah, of course, then you end up with us an us versus them mentality, no matter where you are. That's yeah. something that always drops up. So which when it then comes to making that switch and okay, I'm going to concentrate on, on the ice aspect of the, of the skating. Does it cross your mind to look at something like short track just because again, back to my intro where Australians often think of our sort of a success in the Olympics and it comes to the short track. That's what we mo- mostly think, even though, as I said too, we've obviously got a very long history with the long track and also more so the fact that if you're in Australia, short track is an easier sport to, I guess, be able to train in because we obviously don't have any long track facilities in Australia where you can do short track. I mean, does that cross your mind at all? Absolutely. And before I, uh, before I tried long track, I'd also tried short track. Um, I'd, uh, I'd gone along and I trained with some clubs a little bit here and there. I bought a, I bought a secondhand pair of blades from somebody and I had to go, there was a, a short track within driving distance from where I lived uh, in Melbourne. And I had a little bit of the same attitude to short track as they're both ice skating. They both feel a little bit foreign to me. And I know that it's going to take a lot of work to get good at either one of them. And uh, there was one very significant factor, which steered me or rather two, two significant factors that steered me towards long track is the first one. The one that I already said is I saw that there was a very strong history of people who grew up with inline skating, transitioning from inline skating to long track had a very high success rate of being able to then perform at a world-class level. So that, that was very much in the forefront of my mind. And the other one was uh, somewhat opportunistically at the time is that coach who coached me to my first junior world title at the time that I wanted to try long track, she was the coach for the inline speed skating team in the Netherlands. They'd offered her a job there. So I had a connection within that country um, that meant that I, I sort of felt less, less far from home. She wasn't an ice skating coach at the time. She was just focusing on inline. But when I went over there, we started this journey together of trying to learn this new sport. Uh, so very much at the time when I started learning ice skating, she did as well. And that was, that was a journey together. And she took me all the way through to uh, the Olympic Games with her support. Which I think the important thing for history buffs out there is that, yeah, okay, we, we can think of, and not even just thinking of 2002, obviously 1994 famously, the, the bronze was Australia's first ever Olympic winter medal. But before Lillehammer, Australia's best ever result at a Winter Olympics was Colin Coates, got six in Innsbruck in the 10,000 metres in long track. So there's a trivia yeah. one for people at home who, who might think, like, what was Australia's best ever Olympic result at the Winter Games before 94? Well, there it is. So it's, it is that yeah. history that Australia does have in long track. I mean, how many long track skaters yeah. were in Australia when you made that transition? I mean, obviously Sophie, I'm guessing around that time, had, had I don't know if that was before or after Vancouver, but how many yeah. long track skaters even existed in Australia when you made that transition? So, um, of course, I knew about Colin Coates, and there's another name, uh, Danny Carr. I don't know if that uh, that name speaks to you. Uh, that's another uh, quite from before my time, a high profile long track uh, speed skater from Australia. And I yeah. think both of them were a little bit the same. They were just uh, adventurers who were who were looking, just chasing that Olympic dream, and then just performed way better than anyone ever expected they could like from a small country that doesn't have a long track speed skating team. Um, so what Sophie, um, 
happened to also, that's an interesting, uh, that's a whole side story of its own is the, the coach that got me into long track speed skating or rather got me to uh, be a good athlete and got me into long track speed skating, Desley Hill. She brought me and Sophie and another Australian uh, speed skating athlete with world champion medals, Joshua Lose, together at the same time in the Netherlands to learn long track speed skating together. So we we were in a small city in the Netherlands, in, uh, staying in uh, staying in hotel rooms uh, in a city called Enschede, and we were allowed to use the facilities of the nearest ice skating track basically before they were open to the public because we, we couldn't afford to buy ice hours, uh, being, being Australians with, uh, with no budget and yeah, no, no real proof that we would even be able to be good long track speed skaters. And, uh, I was with, uh, Sophie Muir right from, right from the beginning. Uh, she came out of sort of a, I suppose an early retirement from inline speed skating came back and as an incredibly talented athlete picked up long track speed skating, extremely quickly and uh i was with her at the same competitions where she qualified for those olympic games in vancouver uh, but i missed qualification for that olympics by six hundredths of a second Ouch. so if had i had i been just a little bit faster wow. i would have had three olympic games under my belt already wow. um, but sophie uh yeah sophie was uh, the best of that group that was attempting to do long track speed skating at that time how does that work for qualification in terms of Australians, given that there's that limited athletes in the country for one sport? Is it, do they have sort of regional-based qualifications so that Australia combined with like Asia or sort of another place? Or is it, is it simply a time thing? You've got to reach this time and the top 30 athletes in the world who reach that time at the Olympics, no matter where you're from. So uh, within the winter sports, there used to be, uh, a set of rules for Olympic solidarity, which meant that they would have secondary qualification lists for countries that didn't yet have a participant in that sport. And what that would mean is, uh, for example, if Australia didn't have anyone yet qualified for long track speed skating, the sport as a whole, if they were on that secondary qualification list, they would automatically get bumped up as the first qualified person. So you still had to be of a particular level, but if you were anywhere on that reserve list, you would be automatically qualified, but that was only right. valid for one person. Uh, and so um, Joshua Lose, the other skater that I mentioned, uh, who was in that group of three of us, he was sitting on that qualification list, but because Sophie Muir qualified herself outright, uh, he wasn't privy to using that rule. Wow. So had he been the only Australian speed skater at that time, he would have been the one qualified for the Vancouver games and not wow. Sophie. And I also sat on that list, but I was lower, lower. I had a lower ranking than Joshua did at that time. What was that moment though uh, with Sophie qualifying? Yeah. Even though I was disappointed that you don't qualify, but I mean, that was our first long track skater in what, 16 years, wasn't it? Not since Lillehama. So, I mean, that, no, that, that, was, a that was fantastic. And we were all, super stoked because Joe Sophie was just out there showing us that yeah even within a year and having <laughs> having not been in the sport that with her inline skating background she could really hit like a high level and if if she, if she chose that life if she were had chosen to go continue with the sport 
I have no doubt that she would have been able to be one of the best in the world eventually. But there's always that, uh, that choice you have to make if you want to dedicate so much of your life to a sport that really is just a passion. It's not going to, it wasn't going to, there was no chance it was going to pay her anything. Uh, she would have to be away from Australia for a very large amount of time. So uh, it, it was, it was bittersweet for, for everybody at that, at both times, both when, when Sophie qualified and when she chose not to continue with the sport after that games. How do you work around training in Australia for long track, given that we do not have obviously a, a rink anywhere near the size of, of how big a long track is? Is it just a case you have to work on your, your starts and then everything else you just have to do overseas? I mean, is there anything you can do in Australia on the ice side of things to really train for the sport? Yes. Uh, well, leading into the 2014 Winter Games, I was back in Australia in the summer and I trained with our short track team right. quite a lot at the time. So I trained on the short track. Um, I was probably with them maybe three or four times a week. Uh, and short track is a reasonably good way for training for long track just because you still have a feeling for how a blade interacts with the ice. Um, and that, that worked for me. And then in terms of my fitness and my strength, I just did a normal inline speed skater program and I would be out, you know, training on, uh, empty roads in industry areas and like, uh, cycling paths that weren't too busy and just, you know, lifting weights in the gym, running, doing plyometric exercises. So that was all very much possible in the summer in Australia. Uh, and that was quite a large part of my preparation uh, in the years leading up to 2014 uh, when I wasn't overseas all that much except for competition times. And then when I was obviously when I was overseas, I had access to those full long track facilities and that would probably be six months, seven months out of the year. So most of the year to if you want to take a sport like long track really seriously, you have to be or on the road traveling, uh, or yeah, in another country. Can you describe that moment when you first go to a long track venue? Because they're pretty impressive, aren't they? I mean, if people don't really know what they're like, I mean, it's, it's like seeing an athletics track, but ice in sort of an indoor venue, right? They're, they're, they're a pretty impressive facility when you come across one for the first time. Yeah, so that's, uh, where, where do I start with that one? At first, it, it, really, it really hits you how much ice there is. There's just really a shitload of ice <laughs> in the, it literally it's actually bigger than a 400 meter running track in terms of in terms of surface area it's 500 meters isn't it a, a long track it's, is it? it's it is 400 meters a standard is, lap okay. but they have to have a third racing lane which they right. use for warm-up and preparations right so for for example with a normal 400 meter running track uh just for athletics you just have the racing lanes itself. And then athletes can go and warm up somewhere else and like do, do their exercises somewhere else. But for a long track, when they're running events, there's a third inner lane that's always used for warming up of this, uh, that the skaters use for warming up of the coming races. And that's always got to be added on extra to the amount of ice that they need to create the total venue. So that just means that, some some venues they just choose to make a massive oval of ice with no no gap in the center and other venues yeah at least then the track is going to be like 16 meters wide 
or maybe wow. even more a thing. And the, but that's the first thing. That's just the ice. And then you've got the, the sheer size of the building because yeah, every long track speed skating. So you know that you barely fit a 400 meter oval into a full on stadium. So you've got to think, okay, these stand, they've got to be to keep the ice in, in good condition. So, uh, you know, you walk into the MCG and it's got an open roof on it, but imagine if that was like closed and sealed. So mm. there's, it's such a massive building. And when there's no one skating, the air is so still and there's just a, this very strange echo. Like you're, like you're isolated from the rest of the world. That's it's really, really quite bizarre. And then in the modern stadiums, there's so there's a lot of reflective materials on the inside because it costs so much energy to keep all of that ice cool. They really try and pull out all the stops to conserve as much energy as possible. So some of the new stadiums, it feels like you're in this weird alien spaceship with like ice all over the floor. It's quite surreal. Which, because I mean, this is the beauty about so many winter sports is that the facilities are so unique. Like you mentioned the MCG, you can use that for footy, for cricket, for athletics. You can use it for so many things, but it's kind of like, say, a bobsled track, right? You're not just going to build one of them for, for shits and gigs. You can only really use it for, what, three different sports and there's not that many in the world. So it's kind of, you know, there's a reason why Australia isn't clamoring over to build a, a long track oval anytime soon because it's probably, unfortunately, not much uh, use for, for many people uh, unless we're going to push for a 2034 Winter Olympic bid or something. <laughs> No, exactly. And there's, there's no real, real reason why Australia should build a long track because it's such an expensive facility. Also in the, yeah, in the running cost because of the amount of energy you need to keep the ice cool. And yeah, like you said, what are you going to do with it the rest of the time? Yeah. Maybe you can hold events in there or something, but that's a pretty expensive event venue. And uh, already I know that just because I'm involved in the ice skating community in Australia a little bit that, the short tracks in Australia that we have, they're very hard to keep running as well, just because yeah, through the summer. Yeah. How do you keep all of that ice cool? I mean, it's a lot smaller than a, a long track, but it's still a lot of ice that you need to keep at below zero while it might be 43 degrees outside. Which I think, I, I don't know what the number is at the moment, Daniel, but there's something what like 20 ice rinks in the entire country of Australia. Whereas you go to, you know, some suburbs of Canada and they've got 20 just in one suburb alone. So I think it's kind of, it's, it's always unique when you, you learn about people like yourself and get into these ice sports in Australia who, you know, have to overcome so much and particularly yourself on a, on a sport where you can't train at a venue in Australia in, in your sport. Cause we just simply don't have one. No, that's it. And that's, uh, that, that's what made it quite hard for me to really decide to commit to the sport because I knew if I really wanted to have any kind of good go at it, I would have to do it from overseas. So I'd have to be spending a lot more time overseas, uh, away from my family. Um, and I, I ended up basing myself in the Netherlands for quite a lot of that. And luckily for me, it paid off. Like I got to go to two Olympics. I did manage to be, um, I think it was the first Australian to get a long track speed skating world championship medal. Um, so in, in the end, in the end it paid off, but I did have to sacrifice, sacrifice quite a lot. And I think the, the only reason that I did that is because I just really fell in love with the sport. I fell in love with the fact that inline and ice skating are so close together. And there's just one is the other side of the coin from the other. And it provided me, yeah, so many opportunities to go to go to places and meet different people and represent Australia 
in a really, really professional sport. Um, and because I would have never gotten the same kind of opportunity at something like athletics. Like I'm an athletic guy, but I was just never as good at, for example, running the hundred meter sprint on shoes as I was at skating 500 meters on ice. So I knew where my chance was and I just, uh, I just took it. But I think ice skating in general, uh, no matter where you look in the world is a luxury sport, unless you're thinking about countries that have a lot of ice naturally, almost every sport that has a strong ice skating program has to build artificial ice venues. But that doesn't mean that skating sports can't be a lot, a lot bigger than they are. But I think a lot of that comes from the, yeah, what we talked about earlier is that there's just this natural divide that people consider sport A to be different from sport B. And then you have to choose between one or the other. And yeah, when, when you, when you choose, you, you kind of get stuck in that one subculture. Where did the love of the Olympics come from? Do you, was there a particular Olympics that you remember watching for the first time as a kid and this kind of just connected with you and made you fall in love with them? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I remember, uh, sitting at home, uh, (laughs) on a really, really hot day watching the winter Olympics on TV in Salt Lake city. Uh, and I remember watching, I did watch the long track ice speed skating. I didn't know that it was long track ice speed skating at the time, but, uh, I remembered seeing a, uh, a couple of names that I knew from inline skating sport. And I thought, Hey, I know those guys and they're at the Olympics, they're skating on ice and I was glued to the television. But then once the skating was done, then I was glued to the next thing, which was downhill skiing. And then I was glued to the next thing, which was the luge. And I thought, Holy crap. Every one of these sports is just amazing. Like every, and in a lot of those sports, um, people were explaining to me, and this was a lot of the commentary that you hear on the television is that people were literally risking their lives to do them. And I was already from the young age, a bit of a bit of a daredevil climbing trees and you know, <laughs> riding my bike way too fast without a helmet and things <laughs> like that. And uh, that, that, that was really, that was really exciting to me that uh, people were really, they, they, they loved this enough to, to put their life on the line and go and do it. And that's still, that's still true because I think there hasn't been a winter Olympics that's gone by where someone hasn't unfortunately uh, lost their life at the games. So uh, I don't know if that speaks to, yeah, (laughs) the mentality of the people that do it or what makes sport great in the first place. I think uh, a lot of sport we're training towards safety. And of course that's, that's great for everybody involved, but I mean, there's, it, it really stirs the emotions of everybody. If there's, if there's something on the line while you're competing, if there's really, really high stakes in the game, then yeah, everyone's heart rate, the people competing and the people at home, yeah, that, that goes up uh, 20 beats or so. We like to call the Winter Olympics here and off the podium the real Olympics because, let's be honest, there's no dud sports at the Winter Olympics. They're all perfect and they're all exciting. And I think one of my earliest memories of the Winter Olympics was 
94 in Lillehammer. I remember the Norwegian speed skating team doing very well. I just remember the red suits and kind of being fascinated by these cool, you know, the, the, the sort of the hooded lycra sort of outfits you're wearing and just being fascinated because that's the beauty for Australians watching the Winter Olympics, isn't it? We're seeing these sports that are so foreign to us. Like, yeah, swimming's great. You, you know, athletics is great. These are sports we do as kids. But when are we going to see speed skating? When are we going to see the downhill? Things like that. And it's just, it's so something just so enthralling about it isn't it watching a sport that is just so foreign but so damn exciting yeah and i think tv even doesn't do enough justice to a lot of these sports i don't know if you've attended some of uh, how many of, of these sports have you attended in person actually i'm curious uh, yeah, are we talking winter um winter I've, winter i've seen ice hockey um yep. i have sort of seen curling i saw um canadian speed skaters but they were on not ice they were practicing with blades does that count um, so not many i sadly have not figured i've seen figure skating um but uh, outside of that no i've i've sadly not been able to see some of these other sports in person yet i'll say yet daniel yeah yeah and i i think that i i suppose this is going to get solved with technology soon with virtual reality and and stuff like that but a lot of these sports so when you're talking uh, ski jumping luge downhill uh, i think speed skating falls into that category the the tv tv can't communicate the the speeds and the distances that are involved there uh, you know a 400 meter ice oval yeah that that looks quite small on the on the television it looks like they're just skating around a track but you go and stand within two meters of someone that's skating past you at 60 kilometers now and you realize that that's really really fast for a human to be going with nothing but a couple of knives strapped to their feet. And then yeah. you go and you go and you look at the ski jumping and as a speed skater, I go and I stand at the ski jumping and I go, holy crap, these people are properly crazy. What I do is what I do has got like nothing because these people are literally launching themselves off of a ramp to go and fly more than 140 meters through the air at like a hundred kilometers an hour. And then I think, okay, I'm a, I'm a pussy. I've really, I've got no balls at all. Is, is, is there a normal winter sport? I'm just because like, I often like to question some of these athletes and just like like moguls. Who wants to ski down bumps and hurt their knees? Aerials, who wants to do that and kind of, you know, potentially break your neck? Like I'm trying to think, even curling, who wants to push a stone down the ice to get it? Like I don't think there's a, a normal winter sport where any of you guys are actually normal, which is a great thing. That's why the Winter Olympics are so great. <laughs> yeah, that's it. That's it. That Everything, it's like someone just thought of, what are the, all the most extreme things we can do in the winter? And let's just yeah. put them all together and yeah. have nuts people go in and do it. And that's what makes yeah. it so damn entertaining. Yeah. Uh, so it's not just the fact that people have to be really fit and really skilled to do these sports. They've also got to be a little bit nuts. And I think that's, that's what adds that extra bit of flavor. Like no, no disrespect at all to the Summer Olympics because there's... They've got it uh, easy, Daniel. They can run down a track, whoop-de-fucking-do, like, good for them. Like, <laughs> who's the fastest in a straight line? Aren't we special? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I think those uh, those track cyclists have got some balls because that's another one you go and stand next to it and you think, okay, these guys are really doing something dangerous here. That That is... Uh, that is I remember my first velodrome experience and you don't realise how goddamn steep those things are. Like, it's just... It, it is insane, which, I mean, there, there's lots of transition i was going to sort of quickly before we get to your your olympic experiences the, the training aspect that the legs the lactic acid all that kind of work that you got to put into yourself for a competition i mean track cycling i i there's a lot of transition you see a lot of sort of track cyclists and speed skaters i know there's a few canadians who've obviously done that but 
how everyone talks about skipping leg day. You can never skip leg day in speed skating, can you, right? Like that's that's every day is leg day in speed skating, surely, to work up on the damn lactic acid in the legs. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> you said something quite quite funny. So there's uh, there's a friend of mine, a, a very famous American inline skater. He makes T-shirts that say every day is leg day. <laughs> and I've actually got I've actually got one of them because that that is true. Every day is leg day as a speed skater. You you go skating, it hurts your legs. You go in the gym, you're doing leg exercises, that hurts your legs. You go cycling because you want to do a bit of cross training, that hurts your legs. Yeah, when you're in uh, when you're in a heavy speed skating program, then yeah, stairs are definitely your mortal enemy. <laughs> Always taking the lift, which. With the men- I always love finding about the mental aspect of, of athletes, which how do you sort of overcome those moments where mentally you are saying no, but you know that physically you can say yes, that you still have reserve going? I mean, is, is there training aspects you kind of have to work on with the coaches and, and everything along those lines to help overcome those moments when the mind over matter really has to kind of come into play? Yeah. So that's a, that's, that's an interesting one is um, that, that the whole idea of separating your mind from, from your body is them being separate entities there. I think that's the biggest, uh, maybe, maybe not a, maybe not a mistake, but I think that's where people get into a lot of trouble uh, is that, you know, they believe that one is ruling the other rather than that they're one in the same. Um, but that's, that's my personal philosophy. So, uh, starting from the beginning, uh, getting better at anything is just doing it a lot. You, you want to get better at skating. You just do it a lot. And if you do it a lot, eventually you're going to come into a situation where you're tired and your legs hurt and you've just got to keep going. And that's the first, um, characteristic of anyone that's an athlete is the people that can keep going into that pain zone and just pushing through. Uh, regarding the pain is not necessarily something that's threatening to you, but as something that's required to get, to get what you want. And that's probably an analogy you can use for a lot of different areas in life. So that in itself is not particularly that special. And yeah, you can make training programs that just focus on hurting all the time. And eventually you, from those training programs, you can produce an athlete that's very good at just putting themselves in the pain cave and hurting. And I would say that that's a general approach of what a lot of cyclists take because uh, riding something like the Tour de France is just a lot of being uncomfortable. Yeah. And that's, that's at least that's what, what my cyclist friends tell me is that, you know, <laughs> all you have to be good at is just really being uncomfortable. And then the people who are also physically talented and have more fitness, those are the ones that really rise to the top. You know what I always find when I do these interviews, though, is kind of when I go to the gym, believe it or not, I do go to the gym, is that sometimes I literally am like listening to everything you're saying about these sort of things and going like, well, look, if if I can't run this long on a fucking treadmill, then, you know, I'm never going to be like, think about all these and what the Olympians do and all that kind of stuff and like the the, the pain train and everything along those lines. So I just want to say on behalf of yourself and everyone who I've ever interviewed, thank you for being inspirational for my, you know, pretty crummy gym routine that I do maybe once a month. (laughs) No worries. No worries. Have you experienced though that if you do a harder gym routine, you get more endorphins, you get more of that good feeling afterwards? Absolutely. And it's it's kind of interesting yeah. because it it does it's kind of one of those weird things, isn't it, where you think to yourself, ah, oh, 
can't be bothered going to the gym today. I'm feeling pretty shit, kind of all that sort of stuff. But then ultimately when you go, you come home, I feel pretty good. Like, like let's keep going. Like, it's, it's kind of weird, isn't it? Yeah. So that that's one thing. That's one thing that a lot of people can relate to is, that, okay, you go and you do a really hard workout and you come out the other side feeling really good. And from the outside, that's the perspective that a lot of people have of, the life of an elite athlete is that, okay, you get to do that twice a day. So twice a day, you get to feel really good. But a lot of the, one of the things that people don't realize is that eventually if you train hard enough, that doesn't happen. You don't feel good afterwards. You just feel awful all the time because you're going so much further than what your body thinks is natural and what your body thinks is safe that it tries to quite seriously object to the, to the things that you're doing. And uh, among the elite athletes that I've seen in all of the different sports, I know that within that subcategory of elite athletes, you've also got people where that mental capability of being able to push through the pain, that that's not even the limitation anymore on their, on their performance. So when you say that, you know, the, the body's got more, but the mind, the mind is a limiting factor. There are, there are a select few athletes that you come across where actually it's the other way around where they just don't have that safety mechanism built in anywhere and they will keep going until their feet fall off. So the only thing that will stop them is the fact that someone has to take them to the hospital in an ambulance. Mm. And I think there are other athletes that maybe once or twice in their career can experience that level of, being able to push through the pain. Uh, and I think that the ones who really excel are the ones who have a balance somewhere in between that they, they both have the ability to really switch that, switch that pain response off, but also know when to stop, know when to stop. So it's, that's a, that's a whole nother world that it's difficult for people to empathize with. And the best way that I could even attempt to approach an analogy of this is that there's an addiction there and it's not an addiction to the endorphins that you get after exercising. It's an addiction to just being better, uh, being better at the sport that you want to compete at. Uh, and for some elite athletes that being better means winning. Some of them are really winning focused. Others are just focused on that they're the most perfect they can possibly be at speed skating or skiing or cycling. And that's, that's that other place where they draw that motivation from to do what normally a human body shouldn't be able to do. When it comes to choosing the disciplines in speed skating, obviously you've got everything from the 500 right through to the 10,000. Is it a similar thing to swimming and athletics where I'm going to be a sprinter. I'm going to be better at the 500, the 1000. I'm going to be a long distance speed skater because I look at someone like Colin Coates, who is competing in everything from the 10,000 to the 500 meters. I, I can't imagine that's something that's probably common in, in modern day or is it? Is it like, were you able to you know have a crack at the 10,000 meters on a Sunday if you wanted to give it a go? So if I wanted to give it a go, there's no one that would stop me from going and standing on the start line <laughs> and, <laughs> and having an attempt. But... Um, with regards to myself, it was pretty clear uh, that from a young age for me, I had a particular talent for the shorter distances. I was a bit more explosive. Uh, I had a bit less endurance. I could move faster. I was a bit stronger uh, in terms of raw strength. 
so right from the beginning, that's where I focused was the 500 was potentially my better event. Um, but in, in practice, uh, my results in the 500,000 always seem to be quite similar. Um, and that's, that's where I just kept my focus. And if, uh, you look at my inline speed skating results from my inline speed skating world championships, uh, I'm better at the events that are even shorter than the 500 meters. So there are a number of events uh, that you get on inline speed skating that don't exist within ice speed skating that are made from a bunch of knockout rounds, but of a shorter distance than 500 meters. So you'll have like heats and semis and quarters, uh, so quarters and semis and finals. So you might have to do it five or six times in total, but the distance might be 300 meters, 200 meters, a lot similar to athletic distances. Just one quick question, actually. I've always wanted to, to know the answer to this. Uh, it might be an obvious one. I don't know. Maybe I'm just stupid. But uh, the, the arm movement in speed skating, how important is that sort of while you're out there skating on the ice? Because it's not something you really see in short track because obviously it's, it's a little bit different. But, I mean, is that aerodynamic reasons? Is that kind of to help you skate faster? Kind of what, what does the arm movement come down to? Yeah, well, so you can really get into the weeds here. Um, but I'll try and keep try and keep this quite short. There's a... Um, the, the short answer is two arms resting on your back makes you more aerodynamic because you catch a lot less wind. Um, a lot of skaters from middle distances, they opt for, keep, opt for keeping one arm swinging and the other one on their back. Having one arm swinging is for a couple of reasons. One, it helps with the timing of when to push, which is a very important aspect of speed skating technique. And another one is that when you're traveling yeah, through the corner or down the straight, throwing an arm forward can help you deliver a little bit more power to the ground. Right. And that's why you see skaters, especially in the 500 meter and in the beginning phases of other races, they'll use both of their arms because that means they, they can deliver anywhere between 20 and 30% extra power into the ground when they use their arms, which is, yeah, it might sound really obvious, but that's the reason why running people use their arms is because it helps them more efficiently deliver the power from their muscles into the ground. But the reason why you never see anyone, you know, throwing both of their arms behind them <laughs> for aerodynamic reasons is because they simply don't travel fast enough through the air to need an aerodynamic advantage like that. But when you're talking about speed skating speeds of plus 50 Ks an hour, there's a serious aerodynamic advantage to be had by sometimes choosing not to swing your arms and just hold them on your back. Yeah, wow. I mean, I'm a I'm a I'm a Formula One fan, so kind of aerodynamics and things like that have always interested me. But it's just I've never had the opportunity to speak to a speed skater before about it, Danny. So I just thought I've got to ask that question as a Ben Mortarworth, you know, dumb question of the episode, really. So there you go. <laughs> it's the smartest dumb question so far, probably. Hey, thank you. That's the <laughs> nicest thing anyone's ever said to me on this show. Uh you got your first Olympics, Sochi. You obviously narrowly miss out on Vancouver. You, you touched on it before. You you pick up a bronze at the World Sprint Championships in Nagano not long before the Sochi Olympics, which, as you also said, the first time Australia had ever medaled at a, at a World Championship for long track speed skating. I mean, what's that moment like to pick up a medal a month away from an Olympic Games? If you're going to do it, you're going to do it a month away from an Olympic Games. And had you had you qualified for Sochi at that point? So did you know you were, you were going as well with everything that kind of happened in that moment? Yeah, I already knew that I was going to the Olympic Games because I'd qualified for it, I think, about three months beforehand at a round of World Cups. And I was, re I was really just training for the Olympic Games. Um, and I 
think a little bit of what happened there was perhaps I accidentally peaked a little bit too early. Accidentally uh, so peaked. I, I, that's a good way of doing yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> Whoops. No, well, that's, yeah. Well, I mean, you, you physio, from a physiological point of view, um, you write elite sport programs to try and get an athlete to have as much fitness and feel as fresh as possible at a single point in time. Uh, and usually you try and get that single point in time to be the biggest race of the year. Um, and for me at that world championships, everything just really, I was skating really well beforehand, but, uh, the thing that got me that bronze medal at that world championships was my consistency was incredible. Uh, I skated pretty close to my maximum potential at that time, four races in a row and all of my direct competition to get onto the podium, they, they made mistakes in one of the four events, which allowed me to gain an advantage over the final ranking. And yeah, that was just, it, it was something we didn't expect. We knew that I always had the potential to be one of the best, given that my, my pedigree from inline speed skating meant that I was one of the more talented uh, people standing on the start line but my ability to turn that talent into real results. Yeah. That depended on my training program and how well I could learn skating technique and how well I could approach the, the competitions themselves. Yeah. It's uh, no one expected it uh, and it happened and I was um, probably not ready for it and kind of in awe of it for the next, yeah. Up until uh, I stood on the start line of the Olympic games uh, and I continued to do in that training period in between, I continued to put down really impressive times in training. Um, and possibly the, the only reason why I didn't medal at the Olympic games is because I medaled at the world championships. Uh, and Which, I'll, uh, yeah. I'll explain that in that I was so hyped and yeah. so yeah. green, so inexperienced that I didn't know what to do with that level of arousal that I arrived at the Olympic Games with. Well, I was going to and ask that because I can imagine that adds a little bit of extra attention too. Like the Australian yeah. media, Channel 10 at the time broadcasting the Olympics, they're probably going to go, hey, this guy just got a bronze at the World Championships. Let's focus on it. I mean, things like that that probably you maybe weren't expecting. Kind of you could have been a bit more, you know, incognito at an, at an Olympic Games, yeah. but all of a sudden, boom, is a bit of extra, you know, attention on you. Yeah, so I'm not sure I felt the external attention so much. For sure it had an effect, but I'm, yeah, um, more of an introvert uh, personality. So I don't really get affected from the ex external circumstances all that much. But internally, there was a, a huge dialogue going on of, yeah, maybe you can do this. Um, and that was really helpful in a lot of ways. But just at the last moment, yeah, it, it was too much. And uh, when I say that it was too much, the day of that 500, I was, yeah, um, I was a spring bouncing off all the walls. I was way too high energy for everybody. Um, and uh, a, little, a little tidbit that uh, I'm not sure anyone knows about my journey to that Olympics is uh, graciously one of the commercial teams from the Netherlands allowed me to train with them. And my training partner was a Dutch guy called Michel Mulder. And he was actually the guy that won gold at the world championships and the Olympics. And uh, all that year I was just nipping at Michel's heels in terms of speed and power. And 
I was the closest to him I'd ever been uh, in the week leading up to that, uh, that gold medal that he got at the Olympics. And all I did uh, was I overcooked my first race. So uh, when, to explain that into layman's terms is when you're trying to run with blades on your feet, the amount at which you lean forward to move forward is really important because you always need to leave enough space between your body and the ground to pick that blade up off the ice again, bring it underneath your body and place it down again. It's not quite like running. When you run, you don't really worry about that your feet are going to scrape the ground or not. But when you've got a blade that's 17 inches long strapped to your foot, you really need to worry about how much space you leave there. And there's a really fine line uh, between who, how much you lean forward, how more you can lean forward, great English, <laughs> How more speed you're on the you right can show. <laughs> yeah. So I've been speaking Dutch earlier today, so it's a, uh, it's, it's a. Uh, hey, a feel free rough. to speak Dutch. So, I won't understand you, but our Dutch listeners probably would. Yeah, all three of them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they've, they've been, they've been waiting. They're sitting here for nearly 200 episodes, going, "Oh, when are they going to speak Dutch on this show? I'm sick of when this English." Like, <laughs> such a common language it is. Anyway, yeah. if you lean forward more, you'll travel forward more quickly, especially in the first meters of the race. Um, but if you dial it back a little bit, you'll make sure you have enough space to get that, that blade through. And I thought I was there and somewhere in the back of my head, I thought, fuck it. It's the Olympics. I'm going all or nothing. And I just threw it in there and I didn't have enough space. And within the first 10 meters of the race, I caught my blade on the ice and I crashed. And that was the end of it. So that was, that was the end of my chance to pick up a medal at that event. And uh, I was never going to have a chance to pick up a medal on the thousand meters but I had qualified for it and I competed in it anyway. Um, and one of the nice things, I guess a nice confirmation for myself is uh, at the thousand meters, there's always a 600 meter split time. And I had, I believe the second fastest 600 meter split time of any of the athletes who competed in the thousand meters. But unfortunately I could never get the last 400 meters together. I always completely exploded and slowed down way too much. So I ended up 20th or 21st in the thousand meters, but that was take a nice confirmation. Board, Daniel. S- S- that silver I was... medal in the 600 meters. You can take that. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> the unofficial silver medal on a split time for a distance. Yep. That... <laughs> hey, take it. That, I, I would, I'd, I'd remember that for the, for the moment, which I mean, I mean, obviously the, the answer to the, the question, how did you feel that moment when you crash is, is obviously incredibly disappointed, but I mean, you've built up, sort of all this to get to an Olympics and you you sort of going into it with that, like what, what happens when you sort of have to back up and go for that second race in the 500, knowing that really the chance of that medal is going to, how, how are you able to kind of put that in the back of your mind and just go, okay, well, I'm going to do the best I can right now and maybe show what I was capable of in this second part, which, you know, could have gone a completely different way. Had I not fallen over? Yeah. Um, now, maybe I'm going to share things I shouldn't share right now, but I think it's interesting for people and it's nice to know. So We like hearing um, these I'm secrets. Gonna start, go for it. <laughs> I'm, going to, I'm, going to start with, I'm going to start with media training. Uh, so uh, every Olympic, Australian Olympic athlete, they receive an amount of media training. Uh, and one of the things they, they teach you is how to handle, you know, uh, not getting your best result. So not, not turning up on TV and being a crybaby uh, about stuff. Um, but, uh, one of the strategies that they teach you for this is, you know, every, of course, everyone has to vent if they don't have a good experience, 
but just make sure you do all of your venting off camera. So don't, don't, don't go on TV. No one wants to see that. Let's be honest. No one wants to see that. So what I did after that first 500 meter is uh, there's a, there's an hour and a half in between the 500 meters, by the way. And after that first 500 meter, of course, I, I left quite abruptly. Um, take, actually, let's take two steps back. One of the, I had a choice at the moment that I was laying on the ice after I crashed is I could have exited the track without completing the distance, which would have meant that I was immediately out of the whole competition. Yeah. Uh, because I didn't complete the distance or I could finish the distance and be able to stand on the start line for a second try. So I made the choice at that moment to get up. Yeah. Very slowly skate out the entire distance so that I could have another attempt, even though I knew that at that moment, any chance of an Olympic medal was completely out the window. Uh, so I did that, took my skates off. Um, obviously very frustrated, didn't talk to anybody, uh, remembered my media training, went and I, I went and found um, a dressing room somewhere in the venue that was devoid of anybody. Uh, and I proceeded to smash a lot of things. Uh, wow. Just everything I could find got thrown at the wall and broken. Uh, and I got that out of my system within about 30 minutes, probably used way too much energy. 30 minutes. That's a lot of smashing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, I had a, I had a couple of people that I trusted on the phone, uh, in that time too. Uh, just, yeah, just venting, talking to them. Uh, and then yeah, I, I didn't even warm up for the second race. Like, I mean, I was warm because I was fairly physical in between, but I, I put my, I put my racing suit on, I put my skates back on and I just lined up for the second race. But there's, there's no amount of, or at least I don't think there's any amount of psychological repair that could be done in that amount of time that would get me back to in a frame of mind that would have been optimal enough to go and put down a second race that would be good enough to show that I was the best. Maybe there was, maybe there wasn't. But like I said, when I turned up to that Olympics, I was incredibly green. I didn't have the experience that I probably would have needed on large uh, ice skating events to handle all the things that were being thrown at me. Um, so uh, I turned up, I stood on the start line. I did another race. Um, my time was about what I think four tenths of a second too slow to be up with the guys that were really competing for the medals. Um, but yeah, obviously not so far away to say that I was in a completely different class, but unfortunately 17th. that time was worth, worth nothing. Yeah, 17th I'm seeing here. So you still, you make top 20 on that top, that second time. For somebody, you didn't train and you were smashing shit for 30 minutes. That's pretty decent. <laughs> yeah, I thought I thought so too. So, oh well. <laughs> Look, I'm trying to, the positives here again, silver medal in the 600 metres, top 20 in that second 500 after smashing crap for half an hour and not really doing a warm-up. Yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah. it's, Let's be honest, that's pretty darn good for an Olympics. Just putting the silver lining on it for you there, Daniel. <laughs> no, I was, uh, in the end, um, I reflect on that whole Olympics as actually an incredibly positive experience in my life um, because whether I didn't uh, get to show my sporting credentials, but I, I really got a lot of experience in handling things and situations that have benefited me in so many other ways in the following years. And 
uh, I, uh, I, I don't have many tattoos that, that people know about, but I actually have yeah, yeah, a, a tattoo of Russian, Russian folk art, uh, to remind me of that, uh, of that, yeah, forever, because I still view it as a positive experience in my life. And at that time, my training partner, one of my, uh, yeah, one of my close friends, someone who I spent a lot of time training with, and I suppose fighting, fighting with in trainings, he mm-hmm. came away with a, with a gold medal. So yeah, emotional roller coaster, to say the least. Do you, do you at least get to watch the X-Files with him? Like with a name like Mulder, I can't imagine that he never gets that all the bloody time. But I mean, if, <laughs> if he doesn't, I mean, come on. I, I can't say two things. You ever watched uh, the X-Files with a guy with the last name of Mulder and secondly, a, a Dutch speed skater? I can't imagine that's something that a lot of people have done. I'm not sure he even knows what the X-Files is. Hey, gotta, <laughs> there's got to be a Dutch dub out there somewhere. You know, <laughs> like, Let's find another skater with the last name of Scully and then kind of you, you, you're all up there with that. But obviously between Sochi and, and Pyeongchang, you, you have injuries, surgery, everything else that you're overcoming. So kind of when you then get to a second Olympics, I, I'm, I'm assuming the mindset is completely different having overcome sort of what you've had at Sochi and the injuries and everything, you know, you, Sochi, you've gone in with one mindset. What was the mindset going into Pyeongchang? Yeah. So Pyeongchang came just a little bit too quickly for me. I think one year too early for the amount of time that I would have needed. Uh, so yeah, uh, obviously after Sochi, I, I, uh, I sort of took a step back from speed skating. I needed to get operations on both of my knees. Um, I had some complications in my rehabilitation uh, from uh, from those operations that meant that uh, it took quite a long time before I was, uh, I guess, minimally functional again. And by that time, I was starting from a fitness level of zero. Uh, and that time starting with a fitness level of zero was probably one and a half, a little bit more one than one and a half years out from from Pyeongchang when I really started training like an elite athlete again. Uh, and realistically that's not enough time to, to get in the kind of shape that you need to be to win an Olympic medal. Uh, so I was quite satisfied with the shape that I turned up in Pyeongchang with like good enough to, to get, I think it was a 20th place, uh, on the, on the thousand meters. Uh, and I skated, yeah, an okay ish time on the 500 meter, but I qualified, I was there. Uh, I had some results that season that were, I believe, I think my best result that season was a 10th at a World Cup. So there was probably a potential for me to get a 10th at the Olympics too. But uh, just uh, I was fighting so much trying to just trying to get back in the game that my goal for that Olympics was realistically never to go for the medals. Um, and that's what I had hoped to do uh, four years later. And that was my plan. So after, after Pyeongchang, if I just gloss over Pyeongchang really quickly, um, I went back to inline speed skating sport a lot more. I, I attended more events. I attended more world championships than I had done uh, in the previous years. Yeah, because, yeah, in the previous years, I was or injured or I was really focused on trying to get back on level for ice speed skating. And, um, yeah, I was putting down some amazing results there, like world top five, um, in 2019, I was world champion, uh, on, on inline speed skates again. And that was a real nice confirmation that, yeah, I reached a real peak level of fitness again and, uh, was hoping to bring that through to 
the coming Winter Olympics, but unfortunately that's not going to be possible. And why, why is that? Why are, we, why are we not going to be seeing you in, in Beijing very shortly? Yeah, so um, uh, corona, corona broke out. Uh, and What's that? No, yeah. Never heard of it. Never heard of it. No, that's, that's, that's like a <laughs> must be a European something thing. like yeah, so it's like a weird European cold. I don't know. Right, anyway, okay. So, <laughs> so and that changed the uh, that changed especially for people that needed to go outside and go and in, into gyms for for their work or for their for their sport. That changed everything. Uh, all of a sudden, your whole I mean, let's let's be honest. It changed every everything for everybody. Um, but, uh, it, for trying to maintain your fitness, I think if the whole world took a hit, you know, lockdown did no favors to the health and fitness of anybody. And then when, uh, being healthy and fit is your sport, uh, particularly so is your job. I mean, that's particularly so. And I got, got dropped into, or was forced into a training program, um, that was suboptimal. Uh, but just because of the ways that we had to ways that we had to train, didn't have access to normal facilities like we usually did, uh, couldn't be outside as much as we needed to be. Quite a lot more time spent inside, sitting on chairs, and the result of a year of training like that meant that my back just gave out. Uh, and I think that was because I was doing a lot of training in suboptimal ways, uh, not necessarily correctly. I was spending a lot more time sitting down than uh, I usually would because of lockdowns. And um, I've got some signals that that wasn't going so well for my back, but at the same time, I knew that, yeah, you either get fit now or you give up on trying to get a medal at the next Olympic Games. So I just pushed through and eventually it got so bad to, to the point where, yeah, we realized that I had to have some kind of intervention to, uh, to remedy the situation. Uh, so I was starting to get like classic sciatic nerve symptoms with like, uh, like numb, numb, uh, numb left foot, uh, you know, pain walking, things like that. And every mm -hmm. athlete, they had some pains that they pushed through. Uh, so I had those and yeah, that's not necessarily always a, a really bad sign for an athlete, but we, we got some imaging done and we realized, oh shit, there's just not enough space for my nerve to move in my back anymore. And at that moment, that was, uh, that was in February of this year, then I had a choice. I could either get a pretty serious operation to make more space for the nerve from which yeah, any operation you need to do rehab, or I could, uh, choose a conservative route and let it heal on its own, but, uh, give up on, uh, give up on any chance of going to the Olympics at all. Um, and one of the things yeah, obviously when you're we're talking about things to do with your nerves and your spinal column, it's quite scary. You, you start to think about your life after sport and you think, Oh, what am I, you know, do I, if I have kids, do I want to be able to pick them up? You know, do I want to ever be able to go on a holiday where I go hiking somewhere with my girlfriend, uh, things like that. And at that moment, I, I suppose I weighed the, the chance that I could go for another Olympic medal with the chance that I could potentially do very, very serious and lasting damage to my spine and potentially not be able to walk normal for the rest of my life. And yeah, I, uh, I chose the more conservative option, which was not to get operated and just to give it some time to try and heal on its own. And then if needed a small operation later, later down the road. 
and um, that meant, yeah, uh, giving up on the on that Olympic dream. But I think I felt sufficiently satisfied with what I'd accomplished in the sport uh, to feel okay enough with myself with stepping out of it before I really got a chance to, yeah, show my full potential. Which does that then, so that that's it? There's no chance of sort of the recovery process I could see you go to Milan in, in 2026 or that's it, you're hanging up the skates now to kind of preserve that back? That's still that's still an open uh, an open question as Milan 2026. So I have been saying that I want to return to inline skating on a on a semi professional level next year. Uh, once I've completely given uh, given my back a full year to recover and see how that goes, and if that turns out to be no worries, all good. I might consider yeah putting the skates back on and training for one more. That would mean that if I compete in Milan, I would be 34, but there are plenty of athletes who compete in, uh, in that, uh, yeah, once, we're in, once they're in their mid, mid-30s. But I would say that the chance is pretty small because once you, once you lose that momentum in such a high-level sport, it's, it takes a large infusion of energy uh, and resources to then get back back up to that level so it's not impossible but if i somehow found a way to sufficiently support myself and my health uh and really give it another serious shot then it's not completely off the cards well i just want to add this we're going back to sort of building facilities in australia you know maybe a bit impossible the Brisbane Olympics in 2032, Daniel, are technically a Winter Olympics. So I'm just saying right now we could contact the Brisbane Organising Committee and just be like, hey, guys, kind of need a long track facility because it's a Winter Olympics. And what, you'll be, what, 41, 42 by then? So, I mean, you know, like it's kind of it, – it, it's a possibility. Just keep the body in shape for another 11 years. Home Winter Olympics, just saying. Oh, I know. Maybe I could transition to cycling and have a go at that hey, <laughs> for yeah. for an Australian Olympics. There you I go. I think uh, I'm a little bit small, too small to be a to be a good track cyclist, and probably not fit enough to compete with our road guys. But yeah, <laughs> it's it's not impossible. I will say though, Brisbane. When you say Brisbane, Brisbane's doing a really awesome thing right now for speed skating sport in general for Australia. Is they they've committed to building a new inline speed skating facility, which right. is of the spec that they could theoretically hold a world championship sometime in the future, which is the biggest thing that's happened in inline speed skating in Australia in a very, very long time. And there are some people involved within the speed skating club in Brisbane that have been working their asses off for a lot of years to get this happening. And there have been people working their asses off in other States to try and get projects like this off the ground for a long time. But business is the first one that's sort of, finally crossed the line in the sense that they've got the commitment for the funding to actually build a facility. So for all speed skating sport in Australia, long track speed skating, short track, I believe that this is a really huge step um, because I think that speeds like roller, roller skating, all roller skating sports could be a lot bigger in Australia. And I think there's potential for a lot of people to really enjoy themselves with that because we are a country that has, a lot of big open spaces where you could do roller skating sports if that's inline hockey or artistic skating or speed skating. Um, but 
we don't really make use of it. And I think it's just because the sport fell out of fashion a little bit in the last years, but it seems to be picking up again. So I'm excited to see how those things develop. Brisbane doing really great things. I mean, we just got the Jeff Henke Center there, obviously with the Olympics going around the corner, everything kind of going there. And would you hope that like if that goes ahead or even just in general, that we see some more long track speed skaters coming from from Australia. I mean, where are we at right now? Do we do we have any potentials out there? Are we going to see a long track speed skater in, in Beijing for Australia? Well, no, we're not going to see. It's, the only thing that could potentially happen for a long track speed skater in Beijing is uh, maybe one of our short track skating talents might transition to try and go for the double sport, uh, which has happened uh, before. There was a speed skater who got quite close in the past, but he didn't quite qualify. Um, But in terms of dedicated long track speed skaters, unfortunately right now there is no one. And so we're in a lot I could be it. If I pick up the sport all of a sudden, Daniel, I could be Australia's number one chance for for Milan. I should, I should give it a crack. (laughs) Yeah. If if you're willing, if you're willing to, (laughs) to do that to your life and your body, Go for hey, it. Eddie shot at an Olympics. I, I'm trying to find my in somewhere. So you know, if this, if you're saying there's there's nobody right now in Australia that's dedicated, I I, I found I, I will learn to skate first. That might help, and then it's all up from there. Yeah, well, if if you want some coaching, hey, I'm here for you. Done. All right. There we go. I, I mean, too focused on curling and, and all these kind of sports. Oh, they look, you know, like, that's my bet. No, like I, I need to, I need to look at the, the chances here. So um, Milan look at, if not Milan, then uh, Vancouver slash Salt Lake, where was going to have it in 2030? You know, I'll only be what, 43 by then. I'll be fine. <laughs> well, I, I, there's probably going to be a speed skater at the Olympics. Who's in their late forties. This, well, this coming old, Irene... so it's not impossible. She's what got to be in her mid thirties now, doesn't she? Irene, she's she's up there a little bit, kind of. Yeah, Irene. yeah. No, there there is one skater from Germany. Um, oh, I forget her name, but I think she she'll be in her late forties if she qualifies for this Olympic Games, and that's Plenty of that's time. pretty damn impressive. Wow, that's in us. Yeah, like I mean, we we constantly bring up Andrew Hoy being sixty two in Tokyo, but let's be honest, the guy's just riding a horse. This isn't speed skating now. Come on, like no disrespect to the great Andrew Hoy, but uh, you know, there's there's a difference there. Couple of quick things before we get to our wrap up questions. Just in general about the Olympic experiences. I mean, you talk about how you obviously switched to the ice to pursue that Olympic dream. We always love to kind of hear just from our guests about those subtle Olympic experiences, the village, the opening ceremonies, if you do it, you know, kind of all that sort of stuff. Like, do you do you soak that in more on a second games, kind of what you were talking about, how you were going into to Sochi, or were you able to soak it all in sort of at both Olympics and have some different experiences? Oh, that's a... Uh, so I'm going to give a complicated answer, and the answer is that depends. Um, so you might have heard possibly from some of the Summer Olympics, especially the ones with uh, with athletes where they might necessarily have their event on the first day of the games. And then athletes are presented with a very difficult choice. Do you attend the opening ceremony or not? Because mm. the opening ceremony is costs a lot of energy and time. So as an athlete, uh, that's a, a massive logistical uh, undertaking from the, from the organizing committee and the athletes, they get funneled into buses and then waiting areas. And then uh, you've, you know, you've got to be clothed properly. Maybe you'll eat something on the way. Maybe you won't eat quite enough. There's a ridiculous energy in the air by an opening ceremony that's both fantastic and extremely tiring at the same time. And uh, anyone who's attended an opening ceremony will let you know that you 
you barely sleep afterwards because you're so buzzing with like enthusiastic energy. And then uh, if an athlete, yeah, if they've got to go and compete the day after, that's obviously not the optimal preparation for getting the most out of yourself. So my, my first Olympics, uh, I did a very, very short version. So they give you, usually they give you the opportunity to go and view a little bit of it and then, then sort of go away again and go back home. So uh, I managed to manage to do that. The second time around, I did the full opening ceremony experience uh, because I knew that I wasn't there to compete for medals. Uh, so I thought I, I need to experience it then. I need to, need to go and do it. The first time I went in, I was very much of the, you know, of the opinion myself that I was capable if everything went well to, to get a medal. So I, I took the, the conservative option on all of those choices, but the second time around, it is a ridiculous experience. It's something that you really can't compare to any other, any other experience I've had in my life is that there's so many people with such a positive energy all collected in the same place. And you see, uh, you, when you watch the Olympics opening ceremonies on TV, you see that they, the, the acts that they prepare, it's just so much effort goes into things and there's things that you see. So they always have some performers performing that are also extremely amazing in this skill at what they're doing. And that's always really inspiring. And just, then you start getting exposed to people from other countries. You see people in other sports and you know that every single one of those people that you talk to and you come in contact with, they're all been the kind of people that get up at like 6am in the morning, uh, go and train, go and push their body harder than anyone else or they try too harder than everyone else. They've all made sacrifices to be there. And this is the culmination of all of that effort. And everyone is in anticipation of what the results going to be. So that, that nervous energy is just like a tidal wave that rushes over you. And me being not a particularly emotional person, even I really feel it and go, wow, that, that is something. Uh, and I think, everyone else that I talk to about the, the opening ceremony, they, they all speak about how that, that, that level of emotion, collective emotion and, and energy that you feel is just something that you don't feel anywhere else. Fantastic. Now I love hearing that. And that's something I always comment on. It's like, yeah, that, that obviously difficult decision. If you're competing the next day, make that decision. I've always said just as the armchair critic, like, fuck that I'm going, I'm, I'm, I'm not missing out in the opening ceremony, but uh you know, I can obviously understand how that's um, a little bit difficult sometimes. Yeah, well, if if you knew that the choice was between, oh, go to the opening ceremony and potentially lose to someone by a couple hundredths of a second yeah. or, you know, just stay home one more night and mm-hmm. then have the biggest party of your life the day after. I can watch BTS yeah. on TV. I don't need to be in that stadium. They're, they're, they're still on the same <laughs> screen, right? Like, you know, kind of going, going that way. The other thing, I've always been intrigued about this because, again, back to my point, I've never spoken to a speed skater before. Does Kathy Freeman owe the sport of speed skating some royalties for her uniform that she wore at the Sydney 2000 Olympics? Because that was just stolen directly from speed skating, was it not? Um, I believe it loosely was, yes, because... Uh, there was a whole development project, I believe, well, I might, I might get this completely wrong as well, but I believe it was Nike that were developing those speed suits, both for running and for speed skating. And it was part of the same aerodynamics project. Wow. Uh, and okay. those, 
those speed skating suits that they subsequently used at the 2002 Salt Lake Winter Olympics were from the same class, wow. like from the same development project. So maybe and the speed skaters owe Kathy royalties. Maybe it's the other way around. Yeah, it might be the other way around. Hey, yeah, there you go. Because those speed suits are still regarded as some of the fastest that were ever made in the history of the sport. And is it like a is it like a swimming thing where like they got to a point where the suits got too advanced and they kind of had to, you know, knuckle down on the technology because times were all of a sudden going way beyond what they should have been. Well, so there were a couple of points, and I think speed skating has always been really on the ball when it comes to like aerodynamic advantages. So there are some rules, and one of the rules in particular is that the suit has to conform to the body of the athlete. Uh, there are some really tricky stuff that you can do by like adding volume to the suit in certain areas to make a person more aerodynamic. You would wow. think that, Oh, it, how, if it's tighter, then it will be faster. No, but if you, you think about that, uh, if you put a tail on something, it gets more aerodynamic. So at a certain point they were starting to add like sort of false tails all over the suit to break the turbulent air behind like a formula one car actually. And those kind oh. of things, they got reined in really quickly and the suit development is still moving forward, but they've got a collection of rules together now, which mean that other than really optimizing the aerodynamic surface of the suits, there's not all that much you can do anymore to make the suits faster. But what speed skaters have started turning to now is altering the technique and their body position while they're skating to make themselves more aerodynamic. Right. Uh, and that's, that's where... Yeah, records are still getting broken every year. Does does that mean? I feel like I have to ask this question, Daniel. But like, particularly in the men's side of things, if you're like a bit more, you know, like, just say blessed in a certain area, does that does that help you, like, aerodynamically? Because it's a tail, or like, it's is it is it a hampering like thing? You know, I mean, I just I have to ask the question. So, uh, practically, the biggest problem you're going to run into though is I don't know if you've seen speedy skaters, but they have to cross one leg over the other to mm-hmm. to turn around a corner and yep. um for every man uh you have to arrange it in a special kind of way to make sure you don't nut yourself every time okay. you turn around I and see. for for the bigger boys that's a bigger problem <laughs> right okay yeah. i i just just Needed to clarify there, like we, we, we commented a lot during Tokyo that certain countries had a bit of a bigger crotch bulge in the, in the athletic side of things and they seem to be running well. So I, I didn't know if it was transitioned to across maybe. So um, I'm not sure if that's a yeah, question I, you I, often I, I get asked about, Daniel. <laughs> if they, they've, got, they've got something going on with ballast over there, I'm not sure, but that's something that hasn't reached <laughs> speed skating yet. <laughs> yet yet being the operative word you know it's it's, it's maybe going to come across uh one day uh we like to close off our chats of the series of kind of fun get to know you style questions now these are based off a team canada questionnaire they gave their athletes ahead of both rio and pyeongchang and i'm always excited okay. when i can get an athlete from a sport from the person would say well i've got a speed skater here i've got denny morrison now you ever competed against denny is he is he in your sort of distances in the speed skating I believe he was actually the very first person I ever competed against at an international competition. Well, there you go. It's come full circle. Yeah. Now I can yeah. see your answers to his <laughs> questions and see if who wins. And let's say you're going to kick his ass because he's written some interesting ones here. So these are just dumb questions. Probably 
the dumbest ones you'll ever. There is a drawing aspect. Actually, no, they've taken the drawing aspect out of it. Never mind. You don't have to do any homework, Daniel. Good. You're lucky today. Uh, <laughs> so we'll start off with what is your favourite all-time Olympic moment? Oh, favourite all-time Olympic moment. I tell you what, it's probably the one that hits closest to home is it's an inline speed skater winning a gold medal. Okay. Yeah. And it would be uh, Chad Hedrick as an American inline speed skater. So not an Australian one, but winning, winning a gold medal in speed skating on the Beautiful. ice. That I was like just, it. it's uh, no one expected him to do it. He just came out of nowhere. Uh, a little bit of a, uh, everyone knew that he was particularly talented and he, in everyone's eyes, he did everyone wrong, everything wrong, and still won. Wow, that was uh, that was Incredible. my favorite. I like that. Just just quickly on that, you mentioned before about sort of how close roller sports did come to becoming a summer sport. Is, is there still kind of whispers? I mean, we've just seen skateboarding included. Let's be honest, roller you know rollerblading is much more cool than skateboarding. That that skateboarding was rubbish at the Olympics. I'm sure the rollerblading would be better than that. Yeah, well, I. To be honest, I really didn't enjoy skateboarding at the Olympics either. Like, I like skateboarding. I used to spend my youth at a skate park as well, uh, but with skates on. But it just didn't work. I no, don't know. It just didn't. didn't work. Like, skateboarding can be so much more interesting than it was. And uh, I really think that inline speed skating would have been a much better addition because imagine ice skating, but you can have courses that have, like, downhills and crazy dangerous corners and stuff in it. Like there's so much more ent- potential entertainment value in there, but it got considered again into, I think when they went back to the table at 2012, uh, denied again, 2016. Uh, and then it got added to the youth Olympics as a test sport. Right. So there is potential that it could be an Olympic sport in the future. So Brisbane. it's not completely off the table. There you go. <laughs> yeah, I know, I'm not up to date on whether there's been a decision made on Brisbane yet or not, but unfortunately, I'll probably be too old by the time. Oh that no! But don't if, say it. If no, it happens, I see it. <laughs> and we have, and we, ha- I'd love to have a strong Australian team at the time that it does happen. That would yeah. really, really make me happy. Once I hang up my ice skates after Milan, I'll switch over, and then I'll join you on the Brisbane team for 2032. All right, so we'll lovely be teammates done your coaching would have paid off like really really well at that point um as a kid your favorite sports team was richmond oh well i mean you know you've done all right in the last few years haven't you so i guess i can't really uh comment i'm a supporter (laughs) so where do i have a chance to comment actually seriously i i've i'm not meant to like richmond i've always had a bit of a soft spot for richmond growing up like they never win and then they started winning and then you had things like cocky richmond supporters and i didn't know how to handle that (laughs) Are, are your Canadian listeners going to have any idea what we're talking about? Ah, uh, some will, some will. They uh, okay. actually Colin. Uh, he, our, our Canadian co-host, his um, brother is a mad AFL fan. So uh, whenever I've gone over to visit him, he makes me bring him over. Like, buy me this team's flag and buy me this team's this and that and everything else. So um, yeah, it's a uh, bit, bit, bit of following over there for that. Um, if you could be a superhero, who would you be? Silver Surfer. 
Hey, that's one we never get answered. Silver Surfer's cool. I think more people should answer yeah. Silver Surfer. Yeah. So, yeah. I want to see him in the... Kind like, of similar to an ice skater, isn't he? Yeah, well, exactly. Now that now that Disney own everything and that we're going to see the Fantastic Four properly done, maybe they can bring because we got Silver Surfer in the second Fantastic Four movie, didn't we? But it wasn't that good, so nah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Prove it. Needs a bigger role. Needs a bigger exactly. role. Yeah, Disney are big listeners to this show. Clearly, they're going to buy us out soon. Probably. Um, <laughs> your favorite music artists are. Uh that's a really different one because I'm someone who listens to so much different music. Like if it's a good example of the genre, I'll be listening to it. So okay. that's a really difficult, difficult question for me. Um, Anyone you're listening to right now, maybe that's kind of like, you know, just sort of it's, it's, it's on the, the Spotify playlist. Nah, I, I would say, you know what? Uh, one of my, the one that I, I'll pick one that I was at one time I was extremely obsessed with and it's luckily it's an Australian band. It's Team Impala. Ah, yes. Yes. What happened to them? Are they still around? I feel like we haven't heard from them in quite some time. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're still around, but um, I don't know. I, I feel like they're a little bit more busy touring and they don't release a lot of new stuff or at least it right. doesn't get in, as much in the spotlight as it used to. I I worked at Sanity. Here's one for our Australian listeners many, oh, many yes. years ago, right? Great store. Yes. One of my favourite, probably my only favourite retail job I ever had. But I remember that that was about the time when they were huge. I think they had a song on like Home and Away or something and it really set them off. And, yeah, like everyone yeah. was coming in buy, buying Tamer Parlor. And now, yeah, it's like kind of not quite on that level. But, um, geez, yeah, well, Sanity I think still they... exists, I think. <laughs> No, I don't think so. But I remember <laughs> when they released their second, their second album. I went to see them in Melbourne. No, nice. that's still probably my favorite gig I've ever been to. Fantastic, good memories. I like that. Uh, if you could eat one food for the rest of your life, what would it be? Mangoes. Oh, no hesitation. Mangoes. Done. Mangoes. Nice. Yeah. Now, where you are in Europe, are mangoes common? Like, or because you're a bit far uh, away from like the tropics, you no, can't really well, find a mango. Not at all. Not at all. So yeah, these days, uh, since, yeah, since I'm not being an athlete anymore, I'm, I'm working because, you know, you got to make a living and stuff. And I was actually working during my entire sport career anyway, but we didn't touch on that, uh, <laughs> touch on that topic. But like you, uh, like we, I think we talked about beforehand, almost every winter athlete does, but, um, I've been working and the only way I could really continue working was to stay in Europe. So I was planning on coming back right before the pandemic broke out. Broke out. I even had a flight ticket booked. And wow. uh, the day before I went to get on the plane, uh, they canceled my trip. Ouch. So then, um, yeah, I've been living in the Netherlands since, uh, since the pandemic broke out and mangoes here are, yeah, not so great. I mean, you can get them, but they're really not worth eating. If you don't get a good mango, it's, it's not it's, it's kind of like if you're in the middle of like if you're in Ayers Rock or Uluru and you know somebody says here's have some fresh fish you're probably you know yeah. not gonna not gonna believe yeah, exactly. it too well, are you exactly <laughs> you're, you're gonna take it with a grain don't, of salt don't, don't know about that so just just on that topic like so what what is it sort of what's the career outside of of speed skating sort of what are the, the sort of the work that you are doing outside of your athletic career yeah, well, uh, I had a, a lot of jobs while I was uh, <laughs> while I was an athlete. So I, I was studying mechanical engineering at university while uh, while when I started uh, sport, and uh, then 
uh, while I was doing that, I was working as a, a freelance software developer just because that was one of the few jobs I could do from pretty much everywhere. Uh, and I did that for a number of years. Uh, and then when I based myself to train in the Netherlands, when I was quite serious about getting to Pyeongchang, uh, I managed to, I got a job at a company. I started off as a, a data scientist and then I progressed to uh, a managing engineer, managing a team of developers uh, right. while I was uh, training for the Olympics. Uh, and then, uh, yeah, um, I might've got my timeline slightly wrong there, but then uh, eventually I left that job because someone offered me the chance to be a paid athlete again. And I thought, you know, yes why not that? really? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was like, you know what, why not uh, go for that and have a shot at that and see how that goes. Um, right. But that's, uh, that didn't, that didn't really work out for me. Uh, so then I thought, well, you know, I've, uh, I've got this time on my hands or rather, uh, I've got this space that I'm not really tied to anything that I want to do anything. So then I started a couple, a uh, couple of my own businesses. Uh, and so right these days, right now I'm, I've got a software startup, uh, and I've got an e-commerce business and I'm working as a consultant, uh, helping yeah, some Dutch speed skaters towards the coming winter Olympics because yeah, I've got speed skating knowledge. They've got speed skaters. It, yeah. And too it's many. Uh, they've it's got too many since, since some our way, like, come on, like what's going on? What's in the water there in, in the Netherlands? All these speed skaters calm down. All right. It's in the, it's in the milk. Actually, they all drink a lot of milk. milk. Okay. Right. Yeah. Just, just really <laughs> random, random question. I have to ask you just on the, we're on the topic of the Netherlands. You already know I love formula one. I mean, are you on the Max train? Like, is that kind of like, can you avoid anything to do with Max over there at the moment, given that he's in a bit yeah, of a Yeah, you really can't right avoid now? anything. Like, I, I go and do my shopping and there's, like, cardboard cutouts of Max in the supermarket. It is ridiculous. But, yeah. of course, being on the Max train is a difficult one because there's that whole way, there's that story about how Daniel departed from Red Bull because mm -hmm. of their, I suppose, their attitude towards Max. Yeah. So that's a, that. I'm very torn on that one because, uh, yeah, I have a little bit of a soft spot for the Netherlands now because that's I've spent a lot of my time there. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I would much rather Ricardo be the one winning. It's so easy. This God, this is a whole other episode. But like, it's kind of weird how in Australia people still really don't like Sebastian Vettel purely on the days that he was with Mark Webber at Red Bull because of sort of what happened there. And I've always yeah. found that really interesting because I'm a big Vettel fan. Obviously, I'm a big Weber and a Ricardo fan, but, like, Vettel is just one of the nicest people you will ever meet and he's one of the most humble people you will ever meet. Yet people in Australia just cannot like him, so it's kind of interesting. Like, I know a lot of Australians who don't like Max Verstappen because of things like that as well. So, yeah. yeah We're a grudge country, aren't we? <laughs> uh, maybe. Maybe. We've, we've all got a massive chip on our shoulder, no doubt. Yeah. Um, but... <laughs> There's, uh, there's uh, when you when you get to elite sport and especially when there's more money involved, there's there's a level of politics that that you people I barely even understand and it's very opaque uh, yeah. from the outside and no doubt there was there's a lot more that goes on there and I think or at least I know that at that level that the athletes also accept that that political game is another game in itself and. I don't know what kind of feelings there would even be between uh, Daniel and Max 
but at the at the end of the at the end of the game i think every real elite athlete as those guys are learn to accept things the way they are and then just focus on the competition and I it think seems like from that. what I've heard there, like I, I heard Ricardo on a podcast recently and he was saying that I think he was in LA or something like that and he randomly bumped into Max and they kind of like hung out yeah. for a bit. So I, I don't think there's much like, you know, Mark Webber and Sebastian Vettel, for example, are friends now. So it's kind of like, you know, these things kind of over time clearly dissipate. So, you know. Yeah, but um, that's it. Like maybe, maybe the, uh, things might have played out differently, but there was maybe, yeah. maybe there was just never any chance for that. Yeah, very true. At the end of the day, Ricardo won in a freaking McLaren in 2021. Exactly, which is fantastic. I was screaming at the TV. Yeah. And as somebody who grew up, you can see behind me, I've got a Ferrari hat. So I'm a Ferrari man. As somebody who grew up hating McLaren, it's probably the one time in my life I've ever cheered for McLaren. So, you know, that's uh, (laughs) I'm allowed to at that point when it's Ricardo. (laughs) Well, that's another interesting one is if people are really cheering for the cars or if they're cheering for the drivers because I'm always, with Formula One, I've always been, I just cheer for the Australian guy. Yeah. And I was really disappointed when we didn't even have anyone for a couple of years. Yeah. Until Weber. Yeah. It's, it's the interesting, like I've, I grew up Schumacher and then it just blended into Ferrari and like, always. Oh, so it kind of worked. Whereas now it's kind of, you know, people ask straight out, who's your favorite driver? You know, I've got like a handful of drivers who I love and then I still support Ferrari as a team. So it's kind of, um, it's, and I like both the Ferrari drivers. There was a time there, Alonso, Massa, I didn't like either of them. So I was like, oh, how do I support this team when I don't like the drivers? But you have the team. But, uh, you know, I yeah. guess if you go for Richmond, you might not like some of the players. Anyway, whole other tangent. Um, <laughs> your your favourite place to compete is? Calgary, actually. Ah, nice. Calgary in, in Canada. Yeah, uh, because their ice skating uh, arena is part of the university. So you've yep. got this really interesting, weird blend of university culture and sport culture. Yeah, and that I, was the I Olympic that, Oval, was it not? Too that was one that was their Olympic in, Oval. Yeah, 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 yeah. Which does yeah. that then on a tangent because I like to talk about things that I like. Um, does that make you a Flames fan? Do, like, do you follow NHL at all? And do you pick that up because you like the Calgary Oval? Or because I'm a Flames fan, and you'll make me happy if you say yes. Uh, so I do watch. Flames games, um, but uh, just because I know some people that were on the staff of the Sabers, ah, uh, okay, I might be more of a Sabers fan. Not look, look, they, like I have a soft spot. I'm a Bills fan, so I've got to like the Sabers. So like weird connection, six degrees of separation. <laughs> so you didn't, you didn't say Leafs. So Colin's not happy right now listening to this. Uh, one thing that you have always wanted to do is shit. Um... I'd love to go hiking in Peru. Oh, actually, very yeah, specific. Because as a, as as an athlete, uh, a lot of the time when you want to go on a holiday, you don't you don't choose really physical stuff because there's always that thought in the back of your mind of oh, what if I what if I you know tie myself out too much or get injured or get sick or you know that kind of thing. So when I had to choose holidays, I always steered for really safe, boring stuff, and that's something that I always wanted to do, but never, never got the chance to. And I think people who know me will think that that's a really surprising answer because I'm not someone who is known to like walking long distances. It's <laughs> probably the reason I like skating. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but uh, maybe that's the reason why I've always wanted to do it is because it's probably the ultimate of walking. And I just want to see 
and uh, here Fantastic. it's beautiful. I like it. I just to let you know, Denny's answer was speed skate, become a doctor, and have five kids. So busy man. Uh, yeah, that's there. a lot. Yeah. yeah. Uh, your favorite thing to do in the summer is inline skate by far. Good answer. Good answer. Uh, your yeah. favorite movie is. Um, well, uh, it changed recently. It's now Interstellar. Ah, nice. Yeah, because I thought that was fantastic. What was it before Interstellar? It was uh, Steven Spielberg's AI. Ah, yeah. Oh, yeah, that's a good map. in that long time. I remember that. That was a good one. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's, that- it's kind of been been forgotten, and I think it was yeah. probably a little bit ahead of its time in terms well, of like Kubrick, It was meant world. to be a Kubrick film, wasn't it? And then Spielberg picked it up because Kubrick died. So that was, I think he kind yeah. of took his vision and, and turned it. Because I always got that confused with um, Bicentennial Man. They came about about the same time. Oh, and yeah. Kind of similar. Yeah. Like Robin Williams versus, was it Jude Law and Hayley Joel Osment, wasn't it? Yeah. It was Jude Law, yeah. But I, I yeah. would have to give like a, always in the second place is Gattaca. Ah, is yes. Wow. Give me some good movies here. I see a sci-fi theme here. It's definitely, yeah. I'm a massive, I'm a huge sci-fi nerd, but Gattaca is also probably the most inspirational film I think I've ever seen. Great. It's that, that whole story of overcoming physical limits to yep. do something amazing. Yeah, yeah. If you can anyone see by the wants three really posters behind film, me, yeah. my inspirations yeah. come from dinosaurs, you know, laser sword battles and James Bond. So um, that's... Uh, <laughs> That's where I go through there. Uh, now, I'm going to change this one up. The original question here is your favourite place to visit in Canada, but let's make this an Australian question. Your favourite place to visit in Australia is? Is Cairns. Ah, yes. Beautiful place. Love the, love the rainforest. Yep. So and done, like, I'm uh, guessing done the reef multiple times as well? or Yeah, I've only done the reef once. only done the reef once, but I, I'm a, more of a rainforest appreciator. Nice. Yeah, yeah. Good answer. Yeah. Uh, your favorite cartoon to watch growing up was Tom and Jerry. Hmm. Good one. Good one. The movie was that movie recently? Wasn't there a Tom and Jerry movie recently as well? Yeah, I didn't watch it though. I didn't want to be yeah. disappointed. Yeah, probably. Probably <laughs> save yourself from there. If you had to do karaoke, what song would you sing? <laughs> uh, Rocket Man. Hey. Yes. Good song. I like it. If I if I was more prepared, I would just, you know, cue it up right now. But, hey, we ain't got time for that. Uh, and the final one here for you, Daniel. If you could be an Olympian in any other sport besides your own, what would it be? BMX. BMX. Nice. I think that's a fantastic sport, yeah. Bit of Logan Martin action going on there. Trying no, to I replicate. think it doesn't get nearly enough appreciation as, yeah. as a summer Olympic sport that has real, like, that's real good for spectators. Completely agree. Absolutely agree. Just seeing here, Denny, again, can't make his mind up. He's written mountain biking, volleyball, badminton, and squash. Not even an Olympic sport, Denny. Come on. (laughs) Should be an Olympic sport, let's be honest, but it's not. So uh, there you go. Get your Uh, hands on these things anyway. Yeah, look, well, look, we're very connected here at uh, Off the Podium. We have our friends. Um, simply on their website, uh, before Pyeongchang and, and Rio, they actually like kind of put a whole list of, of athletes. They sadly didn't uh, do it for Tokyo, so I don't know if they're going to be doing it for Beijing. But um, I will say that this, this one is the most generally 
most athletes have the same questions, but this one's the most different one. I, I, some of these questions I've never asked on this show before, so it's good to see something. I might use Denny's more often. I like these kind of okay. changing up the questions a little bit. Uh, before we let you go, Daniel, people who want to stay up to date with yourself, your journey, anything else out there, can they follow you on social media or, or plug anything else out there that you want to give our listeners a chance to check you out on? Yeah, well, I, I would say, um, yeah, obviously follow me. I'm most active on Instagram at uh, Greg Daniel. Um, I'm going to be releasing something soon, which is my, my software startup. I'm going to be starting to make that more public. Uh, and it's also a bit of a passion project because it's got to do with a little bit to do with sport, a little bit to do with health. Uh, people can get a little bit of an idea of what that is by going to HTTP colon slash copilot.fit, um, where it's kind of a bit of an AI predictive analytics uh, software platform that's geared to anyone who's looking to improve human performance because that's just what I'm obsessed with. And if I can't do it through sport anymore, then I'm going to do it through business. And uh, that's where uh, that's where people are going to be able to find me or see me in the future. Great. Well, we'll keep an eye on that. Daniel, it's been such a pleasure to chat with you. I'm really looking forward to working with you through my speed skating career and helping you get me to the uh, 2026 and uh, 2030 Olympics out there. And I also should say thank you for your time. I realize things are very busy for you right now in the midst of promoting No Time to Die, but you have been a pretty decent James Bond. Not my favorite, number five out of six, but that's not the worst. So I appreciate what you have given to the role of James Bond and all the best for uh, all your movie roles moving forward as well. No, you're welcome. Uh, Thank you very much. Massive, massive thanks to Daniel for his time. As I said, fifth favourite James Bond. Still a very good James Bond, but definitely not my favourite. And uh, very much looking forward to seeing what he does after his role as James Bond. And also that speed skating stuff was uh, pretty fascinating too. I'm very excited to be able to finally find my sport, now knowing that there are legitimately no long track speed skaters in Australia at all. That is that is actually kind of incredible to think about that. So uh, maybe if I don't quite make it to Milan in 2026, there's every opportunity out there for some budding speed skaters listening to this right now to uh, have a chance to represent your country at Olympic Games in only a matter of years' time. So big thanks to Daniel for his time there. Fascinating, fascinating chat. In the meantime, we are very close to episode 200. And matter of fact, that's our next episode. You're going to hear another clip show in our next episode going over the best bits from episodes 151 right through to 199. Very excited to relive all those memories with you and we are so close to Beijing you can sniff it it's just around the corner you know that's going to mean daily coverage during those Beijing Olympics Colin myself and Jared coming to you for all the fun of the real Olympics we're so excited for the real Olympics and very much going to be busy busy people throughout those games if you don't want to miss a single one of those episodes you should subscribe to us on all good podcasting platforms of course simply search off the podium wherever you listen to your podcast and while you're there we'd love to hear what you think of the show leave some feedback we always do appreciate ratings as well and also stay up to date with us on social media instagram twitter facebook you know how to find us search off the podium either hit that like or follow button and you will never miss a single post episode or anything else Massive thanks to Daniel for his time. Massive thanks to you, the listener, for tuning into this interview. Special shout out to Jason Momoa. And remember, as always, go left.
What an episode. You loved every single second of it. It's been, again, just quickly reminding you once again, if you want to help us win a Sports Podcast Award, sportspodcastawards.com, register to vote, click on Best Olympic and Paralympic Podcast section, listen to the other nominees, and then go, hey, off the podium's awesome. They're so good. They put in so much work and so much effort, and we just love them, and they deserve to go on the podium for once. Ben's awesome. Jared's awesome. Colin's okay, but he's also kind of awesome. We'd really appreciate it. And particularly if you've actually listened to the rest of this and ended up here, because generally I assume you've well and truly tuned out by now. But seriously, if you're at this point of the podcast, then you're a true listener. And that means that you're a true fan and you should vote for us. Sportspodcastawards.com. Do it now. We will thank you forever. Literally ever. Like every episode moving forward, we will thank you forever. Sportspodcastawards.com. All right. Thanks for tuning in. We'll speak to you next time on Off the Podium. I'm I'm really going to go now. Bye.